I'm Charlie Melcher, founder of The Future of Storytelling. Thanks for joining me today for a very special episode of the FOSS podcast. At FOSS, we have the pleasure of working with artists and storytellers across all forms of media. But photography is one that is particularly near and dear to my heart. I began studying photography as an art form as an undergraduate at Yale in the mid-1980s. At the time, there was no venue for students to publish their work on campus, so I decided to start a photography magazine. Black and White, the Yale Undergraduate Photography Review, was my first publishing endeavor. Engaging in the creative act of editing, designing, and printing that magazine, and participating in the community that coalesced around it, made me realize what I truly wanted to do with my life to use my head, hands, and heart to make meaningful and beautiful things and to bring a community together around a shared passion and purpose. Through photography, I found my calling. It was during those formative years that I first met today's guest, Stephen Shore, who became a lifelong friend and mentor. Stephen has been lauded as one of the most important photographers of our time known for his deceptively beautiful color images, his thoughtful writing about the medium, his devotion to pedagogy, and his determination to never stop finding new visual problems to solve. He was the first living photographer to have a solo exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And he's had two solo shows at MoMA, the first in 1972 and the second in 2017 as well as numerous other exhibitions at museums and galleries. He's been awarded a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, an American Academy in Rome Fellowship, the Royal Photographic Society Honorary Fellowship, and a Culture Award from the German Society of Photography. He's published more than 25 books, including one of my favorite books of all time, The Seminal Uncommon Places and he's been the director of the photography program at Bard since 1982. Stephen is someone who has dedicated his life to the art of photography, the pursuit of understanding how the medium works, what sets it apart, and what questions it's uniquely positioned to answer. Given our shared passion for the medium, I'm truly looking forward to talking with him about his life, his craft, and the second edition of his book, Modern Instances, which comes out this month. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Stephen Shore. Stephen, it's such a pleasure and an honor to have you on the Future of Storytelling podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Charlie. I'm looking forward to it. So there's this old adage that a picture is worth a thousand words. Yes. I wonder, do you think that a photograph tells a story? I don't think a photograph tells a story. I think there are some photographs that imply a narrative, that look like a film still, and imply a narrative the way a film still might imply a narrative but actually tell a story? No, and not even a sequence of pictures does it very well. I mean, it can do it in a rudimentary way, but it's not really telling a very complex story. Compare it to, to what a film can do. You know, there's a, 
an Amazon ad on television right now. And it's a young couple and they have a fight. And he goes off and to console himself, he buys some fitness equipment on Amazon and she buys a dress. And then they go out and she goes out to a party, but then she come, they both come home and in their separate apartments, they both watch romantic movies on Amazon Prime. And then he goes to her door and they get together. It takes 30 seconds. And it's much more complex a story than a Life magazine picture story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's something that film does that's more complete or more powerful yes. storytelling. It's, yeah. it's narrative because it flows in time, because a, a, a novel does, because theater does. It can do things that a single photograph can't do, but this isn't a flaw of photography. It's one of its prime features, is that the image is decontextualized. Mm. It is taken out of the flow of time. It's taken out of the continuity of space. A photographer who understands how the world that we see and experience is translated into a photograph gets to use the medium to do what it does. I um, just recently completed reading and really enjoyed your book, Modern Instances. One of the topics that I found so interesting was the discussion of the act of making a frame, that decision that a photographer makes of sort of where to draw the edges and what to leave out. Talk a little bit about that. Well, it's in a way the first decision a photographer makes. The frame has many functions in a photograph. It, 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 the simplest one is what you described, drawing a line between what's in and what's out. But it's not as simple as that because unless you're working in a studio with a white paper background, it's always cutting things off. The edges are never clean. And because of that, there's always the question of how much do you show on the edge of something being cut off? How does the edge create structure in the picture? As something, as a line is near the edge, there's a little vibration between that line and the edge. Step back a foot and it changes. Move a foot closer and it may disappear. And so it is the beginning of defining what the content of the picture is, and it's the beginning of defining what the structure of the picture is. In your opinion, there is a dialogue or there isn't a dialogue that you're intentionally having between your making of the image and the viewer's reading of the image? When I'm in the midst of photographing, I'm not thinking about that. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just totally immersed in the process. There was an interesting section in the book about structure versus composition and what photography does versus, say, painting. It had always struck me when people talk about a composition of the picture, I know what they mean, but it, the word never sat right. The word compose comes from a Latin root, componere, which means to put together. The word synthesis comes from a Greek root, syntothenai, which also means to put together. Composition is describing a synthetic process. For example, a painting. 
you start with a blank canvas, and every mark you make on the canvas adds complexity to it. That's a synthetic process. A photographer does almost the opposite. They start with the whole world, and every decision they make brings order to it, starting with where the frame goes. And in this way, photography isn't synthetic, it's analytic. If I look at words describing analytic processes, I think of things like solution. Solving a picture seems more a description of what it feels like doing it than composing one. Yeah, you, you, um, you, you use this phrase, a photographer doesn't put together an image, a photographer selects an image. Yes. After a photographer has had a good bit of experience with the medium, seeing the world, taking a picture, seeing the result over and over again in different situations, there is a sense that their state of mind can be impressed upon the picture their sense of space, the clarity with which they're seeing, all the, the subtleties of their state of mind, the subtleties of their perception guide the decisions they make, exactly where to stand, at what angle to the, to the light as it reflects off things, exactly where the frame goes, that these decisions become finally guided by the state of mind of the photographer. You introduce a concept which I hadn't been familiar with, which you referred to as objective correlative. This is a phrase used by T.S. Eliot in an essay he wrote about Hamlet. And I don't have it in front of me. I do have it. I can find it. I, I actually have it here, too. You want to just read it? This <laughs> sure. is what T.S. Eliot wrote. The only way of expressing emotion in the form of art is by finding an objective correlative, in other words, a set of objects, a situation, a chain of events, which shall be the formal of that particular emotion, such that when the external facts, which must terminate in sensory experience, are given, the emotion is immediately evoked. Yes. I was interested in it because 100 years ago, Alfred Stieglitz did a series of pictures of clouds that he called equivalents. He photographed clouds because he wanted to remove the photograph from the su subjective reaction to content. You photograph a car and people have reactions to cars in a different way than they might, may have to clouds. He wrote that he wanted the pictures to be more like music. And I, in trying to describe this to students, other words don't exactly touch it. It's sort of like a metaphor, but it's not a metaphor. It's sort of like a symbol, but it's not a symbol. And the closest thing that I've come to a description of it is the objective correlative, that it does something to you by experiencing it. And that's what you feel is happening successfully in a photograph when somebody has an emotional response to it. Yes, and it's not just emotional. It could be, although Eliot was talking about emotional response, I think it goes beyond that, uh, a larger psychological response. The only time I had the opportunity of hearing Walker Evans speak, and, and let me add that no one had a greater influence on my photography than Walker Evans, whose work I first encountered when I was 
I was given a book of his for my 10th birthday. I only heard him speak once, and it was in 1971 at the time of his large retrospective at, at MoMA. And the central point of his talk was to talk about his work as transcendent documents, which I was not expecting to hear. And what he was talking about was his photographs, in a way, as equivalents. And one way that I found of perhaps better elucidating how uh, the connection between, or, or the difference between Stieglitz's idea of equivalent being associated with music, a, a more abstract medium, and the Walker Evans, is that a lot of music has words. And those words aren't abstract. Those words have real life associations. And yet it still, it still can have the emotional and psychological resonance of music. And I think that's what Walker Evans was getting at. And that's what I think a lot of the best photographers can do, that they're looking out at the world and being sensitive to internal states at the same time. I never knew that you had received a book of Walker Evans' photographs when you were 10 years old. First of all, that's not a normal gift for a 10-year-old. <laughs> and perhaps that helps to explain why you became so precocious uh, as a photographer. I mean, your young career was more than most people you know, could dream to accomplish in their entire lives. Tell us a little bit about your early life as a photographer, let's say for the time you spent at Warhol's factory and then up to your one-man show at, at the Met. So I, I started very young, and I feel very fortunate that there were, have been a number of people who influenced my life through gifts or other associations that uh, completely changed the course of my life. And it begins with an uncle of mine, my mother's brother, who knowing that I had an interest in chemistry when I was five, for my sixth birthday, gave me a Kodak darkroom set. Now, I, 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 let me add that I'm on Instagram and I post fairly regularly. And last month I posted, or actually it was in July, I posted a series of pictures that I had made exactly 50 years before. My birthday is October 8th. On October 8th, I'm going to post a picture that I printed as a result of this gift 70 years before. So I wasn't taking pictures. I was taking, using my family's you know, brownie Hawkeye negatives and printing them. And I did this for a couple of years before I started taking pictures. And then the summer that I was eight, uh, I got a, a manual 35-millimeter rangefinder camera. And the rest is history. But, but also, I, it's like, I feel like in a certain way I was destined to do it uh, when I was uh, 14. I approached Edward Steichen to show him my work. Now, <laughs> Of course you did. <laughs> you know, a, a, a pushy young <laughs> New Yorker, knowing, right. knowing, knowing a little sense of restraint, so, for whatever reason, he was very gracious, bought three of my prints. In my 
junior and senior year in high school, I became interested in film and started going to film screenings almost every day. I don't even know how I pulled this off. I really had stopped going to school, typically seeing two movies a day. There were great theaters in New York then. The Bleecker Street Cinema had mostly European or South American Asian films. About the same time, Jonas Mikas opened the filmmaker's Cinematheque, which had what might be, I guess, called avant-garde films. And I made a, an eight millimeter film that was shown there the same night that uh, Warhol premiered The Life of Juanita Castro, and I was introduced to him. And I, the factory was famous at the time in New York circles and asked if I could come and photograph, and he said yes. And I spent three years there. At, at that point, I realized I couldn't maintain the pretense of being a student and told the school I was and my parents that I was dropping out. And this was high school you dropped out of? Yeah, this, this is my, my senior year in high school. And you didn't go on to college, right? No, but I, my college was on East 47th Street between 2nd and 3rd <laughs> Avenues. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I got from him is, you know, people think if I, if I do interviews about that period, people want to hear about the parties and the drugs. Andy worked every day, and he, he had a, a work table, a, like a four-by-eight plywood work table, and he'd come in in the early afternoon, and he had projects every day. And some people like to create in solitude. He didn't. He drew energy from people around him, and this is why the factory existed. He wanted people around him, and he would involve them in what he was doing. And so let's say he's working on the cow wallpaper and trying different color combinations, and he'd say, oh, Stephen, uh, w which color do you like? And having other people around focusing on what he's doing, and he was getting energy from that. But what I got from it was I saw how an artist makes decisions. I got to see in a day-by-day -day way an artist who worked every day make aesthetic decisions and play with things. Try something. This didn't work. Try something else. And to see this over a three-year period, I came away with an understanding of uh, aesthetic intentionality and uh, a creative process. Incredible, incredible experience. And then after working there and working on films with him and photographing, how did you then end up eventually getting a one-man show at, at the Met? Well, I was an ambitious young man. And my ambition went beyond being an acolyte of Warhols. I saw people for whom this was their life. Like, this was... This was their claim to identity, was to be a follower, to be hanging out at the factory, to be in the group that he took to parties every night. And uh, I just had more personal ambition than that. And so at some point I realized I, I'm, I have to leave. Uh, this, is not, this is not my golden age. I'm only 19 by the time I left, you know, 18. Through my association with him, became very interested in serial imagery and also became interested in a lot of conceptual art and began doing uh, conceptually based sequences. 
So I brought them to the Met, to John McKendry, who was, the, it was then the Department of Prints and Photographs. And he said, come back in a week, and I did, and he had one of them framed, mm. which I wasn't expecting because the Met didn't show living artists. It was their policy. And what I didn't know was this was 1970, the 100th anniversary of the founding, and the trustees decided to change their policy and begin to show living artists. And the first show was sculpture by Jules Zelitsky. Uh, the second show was uh, collages by Joseph Cornell, and I was the third show. And you were how old then? 20, 23, I guess. Mm. And, and it was a shock. I mean, it's like, on one hand, your dreams come true, and then it's like, then what do you do? And I was un really, I think, emotionally unprepared for the, that experience. I mean, it must have been a little bit like a, an athlete winning the Olympics at 23 and then you know, retiring or, or wondering what yeah. am I going to do now that I've got a gold medal. Or, or maybe it's related to the Sports Illustrated curse that, you know, when your picture's on the cover of Sports Illustrated, then you flop after that. And so it forced me to go into a new direction. I, I mean, I saw this as work in progress and the progress stopped. I mean, it really was a shock. So... You and I met, first of all, when, when I was a student at Yale, and that was a really informative period in my life because I was very actively studying photography as a form of storytelling. So even though we started this conversation with you saying you don't think photos are stories or even sequences of photos, I remember at that point uh, sitting down in the Art and Architecture Library and taking out Lee Friedlander's Factory Valleys beautifully printed book, beautiful collection of photos, and studying that page by page, image by image, thinking through why this sequence of photographs appeared in this way. What were the decisions? What were the, the, the sort of story that was being told by Lee Friedlander? And then I actually wrote my senior thesis on Robert Frank's The Americans. And I was trying to bring... Uh, a kind of critical practice to a sequence of pictures, to a, to a collection in a, in a very seminal photography book. And I wonder about, well, several questions here, but one, you mentioned the Walker Evans book that you received at 10. Were there other books of photographs that were major influences for you? Uh, so in the late 60s, I, I was sequencing my work for a catalog a Swedish catalog uh, of uh, uh, Warhol's first big European retrospective. And the, the, the editor of the catalog, when we finished sequencing my pictures, said, I have something to show you. And we're at a loft in Soho with a big open space. And he laid out uh, Ed Ruscha's book, Every Building on Sunset Strip, which is accordion shape. And it's every building on Sunset Strip, as the title implies. And I saw how the kind of conceptual frameworks I was thinking about at the time and bookmaking and aesthetic intention all came together and uh, went to a, a, the best contemporary art bookstore in the city, which was Wittenborn and Company on Madison Avenue between 78th and 79th, 
and uh, went there and got all of the Rocher books at the time. But that this happened later, and this was the beginning of the, the post-Warhol phase of my work. It's amazing to me how the book as a art form itself, the photo book, has become so popular and so revered. When I started my career, first job out of college at Aperture, uh, creating photo books, I would have never guessed that 25 years later it would still be thriving. I would have thought <laughs> it would be out of business as a field. And to, to the contrary, there, there are dozens of photo book publishers around the world making a, a living and turning out beautiful work. And I wonder if you have thoughts as to why this has thrived and been accepted. I think a few years ago, some photo book publishers uh, experimented with digital books, and no one wanted them. People like the physical object of a, fo a photo book. I would assume art books too, but photography books, the surface of a photograph is very similar. It's a kind of nondescript surface, and it's the same kind of surface as a reproduction in a book, as opposed to, say, Anselm Kiefer painting, where there's no way to reproduce the experience of a Kiefer painting, forgetting scale. And there could be scale issues in photography books too, but just the physical experience of a Kiefer where he is attended to every square inch of the surface and the surface is dense and three-dimensional, it can't be reproduced. A photography book can. Also, photographers are prolific. How many paintings does Kiefer do in a year? How many photographs do I take in a year? And so my the photographer's work tends to fall into bodies of work in a way that's maybe unique to the medium. And book becomes a perfect form to gather it. I was struck by a couple of other things as well. One is that the uh, digital age probably uh, enhances the desire for the physical object. As you said, no one, no one wants more digital files. Another is that it, there happens to be an opportunity now for these publishers to reach directly to their collectors, to the audience, so they can go and sell. They can do smaller runs, sell them at higher prices, and sell them directly and not lose half the revenue to the bookstores. And then I think on, on top of that, uh, a lot of the photographers realize that it's a more permanent and popular, you know, be, be distributed in long-lasting form than even, say, a big show. I mean, I was talking to the head of photography at MoMA. Uh, he was just saying how many of the photographers he talks to are more interested in the book than the exhibit now because they know that it'll be seen worldwide and it'll be around for, you know, a long, long time as opposed to three or four months for a show. And, and then, of course, I think there is something... Uh, very special about being able to play with the form and the material nature and the quality of the reproductions and so many interesting creative decisions that get made when you're designing and manufacturing a book as well. One thing I did note as I was thinking about you being influenced by every building on Sunset Strip, uh, you actually published a collection of postcards. <laughs> Ten highlights of Amarillo, Texas. And half the cards were kind of 
civic highlights that would probably have existed already as postcards. The Main Street, I mean, these are classic postcard subjects. The Main Street, for some reason, hospitals will often appear in postcards. The tallest building in town, uh, the Civic Center, the county courthouse. And then uh, the other half were quirky local places like Doug's Barbecue, which my Amarillo friends thought was the best barbecue in, in, in town, or the Double Dip, which was a, a drive-in ice cream place that you would go on dates to. Uh, I went to the largest printer of postcards in the country, Dexter Press, and Wittenborn, the bookstore that, that sold the Ed Ruscha books, agreed to put a postcard rack up for me and sell the postcards. And I was convinced that what the New York art world wanted were postcards of Amarillo, Texas. They would just love them. <laughs> eat them up. <laughs> they would absolutely eat them up. And so I had uh, 5,600 sets printed, <laughs> which was 56,000 cards. And Wittenborn sold none. <laughs> <laughs> Well, their loss and my gain. You were very kind to give me a set years ago. <laughs> I still have. <laughs> uh, I was interested in postcards and snapshots, not out of any kind of low art snobbiness, because there was something often very genuine about them. That while snapshots often had their own conventions, Every now and then you come across one that felt like an immediate experience where someone who was unschooled in photography was simply recording something that meant something to them without trying to be art. And with postcards, these were not usually untutored photographers. These were often a local professional. But it was not about self-expression. If the high-low motel in Northern California hires you to take a picture you want to just you want to show the motel in a as clear a way as possible so the 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 driving motivation was in fact clarity and the structural decisions where to stand how much to include what light to photograph it in were all guided by the desire to make clear what this what this building looked like and it wasn't and and if the photographer tried to do something quote creative that drew attention to their own artistic process it would it would run against the desires of the people at the motel who are hiring and so that simple clarity i found i learned a lot from producing work in the form of a postcard and then the following year, I did a, a series called American Surfaces, which were exhibited as Kodak-made snapshots. I understood that I was taking the cultural reference of that form and drawing it to the work. I would imagine with somebody who had such success early on, that it would be tempting to just sort of replicate what you, you know, had become known for. You tell a story in the book about uh, a dinner with Ansel Adams, perhaps a drunk Ansel Adams, and some comment he made. Um, would you mind sharing that? Yes. So I went to dinner with, with Ansel, and this was 
I think in 1976, he was 85 and I was 28 or 29 or something. And he, I saw him drink six tumblers of straight vodka. <laughs> and he's at one point said, I had a creative hot streak in the 40s and since then I've been pot boiling. And he didn't say it in a morose way. He said it just like someone 85 observing their life. An artist can go on a creative hot streak and do revolutionary work, create a new paradigm of seeing, and then it stops. Photographers, if you've devoted your life to the medium and thought of yourself as well, I plan on being a photographer and look back at what one's predecessors have done. This was something that friends of mine and I recognized and discussed. With that in mind, I understood that when I ever found myself copying myself, kind of doing it by rote, I would just stop because I didn't want to be in that position. And so I wonder if there's something that is related to the nature of an analytic discipline that a young person can see things in a way and make connections that as we get older, the neural pathways get hardened. I did two bodies of work that I think really saw things freshly, and one was American Surfaces and the other was Uncommon Places. I'm not sure that I ever am going to do that again. Just because I, I understand that doesn't mean I can't continue to produce. And I, I, in the book, refer to a passage in Bob Dylan's book, Chronicles. Because if you look at the period of his life between the writing of uh, Blowing in the Wind and Visions of Johanna and Mr. Tambourine Man, it was just, it was miraculous, the music he was creating. And he said he could never do that again, that... To do that, you had to have, let me see if I can find it. He said, those kinds of songs were written under different circumstances, and circumstances never repeat themselves, not exactly. I couldn't get to those kinds of songs today. To do it, you have to have power and dominion over the spirits. I had done it once, and once was enough. I, I talked about the emotional shock of the sh show at the Met. The emotional shock of that hot streak, which lasted about a decade, stopping. The questions that drove this process for years at one point stopped arising. And I, I, I'm saying arising because that's how it felt. It wasn't like I'm sitting thinking, what am I going to do next? It was like I was compelled from something, I don't know where it came from, and then it stopped, which was very upsetting. But what I realize in retrospect is that those questions were answered and that at that point I had mastered the formal understanding of the medium. And now I could, I could repeat myself I could long for those days and that I was doing that and make work in that mode, or I could move on to something else, which is a different way of mastering a medium, 
but but I also have always tremendously respected the fact that you never did sit on your laurels and you have been somebody who's brought curiosity and sort of new challenges to your work and not been scared to change it up and try new things. I mean, for example, being an early adopter using a phone to take pictures. You mentioned that you once had a conversation with John Sharkowski about the difference between illustration and photography, that he said an illustration is a picture whose problems were solved before the picture was made. Yes, and what he was saying essentially is that a work of art is itself the solution to the problem, that the act of making it is an attempt at the solution, not that the solution was arrived at before and then you simply make it. So we also have to talk about technology because one of the ways that you've kept yourself trying new things and exploring and growing and asking new questions was by using new tools. And certainly the different tools allow for different types of uh, formal expression. And, and you again mentioned <laughs> something in, in the, the book referencing again John Sharkowski and his introduction to photography until now uh, about his relating August Ren Renoir's story to his son about the use of paint and tubes. So the story is that Late in Auguste Renoir's life, he had a conversation with his son, Jean Renoir, the, the great filmmaker. And he told his son that if it weren't for paint in tubes, there wouldn't have been Impressionism. People wouldn't have been able to go out of the studio and paint from life in the world. And Sharkowski goes on to say, he isn't saying that paint in tubes invented Impressionism. But, and he said, perhaps it was the desire of painters to go out in the world and out of the studio that led to the development of paint in tubes. But whatever it is, there was a symbiosis. And I find this true of the technological developments in photography, that as much as any medium tied to the tools we use, and that if a camera can do something new, it's not interesting simply because it's new, it's interesting because it means something can be said with it that couldn't be, have been said before. In 2017, uh, in the fall of the year, I, uh, a, a large retrospective of mine opened at MoMA. And also on my mind was the experience that I related to earlier of my show at the Met and the emotional impact of that show. And so learning from that experience, I decided, okay, I'm gonna just move on to a next body of work that's not in the MoMA show. And Hasselblad had just made in early, I guess, right at the beginning of 2017, a camera called the H1D, a handheld camera, just a little larger than a 35 millimeter, that produced an image with resolution greater than an eight by 10 negative. And so I made, I had a show at my gallery, 303 Gallery, during the MoMA show of this work, where I was making prints that were you know, four by five and a half feet of close-up details of things. 
where things in the prints were larger than life size. And when the light was right, something very special happened and they almost look three-dimensional. Uh, it just becomes visually very vibrant. I couldn't have made those pictures without Hasselblad's invention. I wasn't, again, interested in it as a novelty. You know, for 30 years, the main camera I used was an 8x10 view camera. It meant I had to work on a tripod. Because of the focal length of a normal lens, a normal lens on an 8x10 is 300 millimeters or 305 millimeters. Depth of field is very low, and I have to, you have to stop down. And I'm often shooting at f45 and f64, which means very long exposures. All of that's limiting what I can photograph. I can't photograph any action. And as I mentioned, I'm tied to a tripod. Now I have a camera that I can use as quickly as a 35 millimeter. I could take pictures of people on the street with it. I can focus, as I said, a foot and a half away and, and focus in a, a kind of offhand, spontaneous way with it. And it's producing a picture that has higher resolution than an 8 by 10 negative. So I, it, it opened a door. It opened a door to an expression that couldn't have existed before the camera was invented. The camera doesn't make the picture, though. The camera doesn't think of what to do with it. The technologies asked the question to you. The, these technologies were sort of challenging you to think new ways, push them in new ways. Yeah, and in 74, one of the pictures that I did for Uncommon Places that was actually the cover of the first 1982 edition was in the town of North Adams, Massachusetts. And it's, you see, looking down a street with red brick New England factory buildings, and the town just comes to an end. And there is countryside at the end of the street. And I've been interested in this transition of how, what it, what it looks like for a city to end and countryside to begin, or one neighborhood abut another neighborhood. And it's very rare that you can find a place at eye level, like Holden Street, where you, where you can not just understand it, but where a camera from a single vantage point can see it and describe it. And then I started playing with drones. So hold on, before you go to drones, I just have to say to you, that Holden Street image in North Adams, my dad is, was born in North Adams. <laughs> That view, what you're calling countryside, is actually a lot that had been taken down. It was an empty street, you know, because the buildings had been removed. My grandfather had Melcher's General Store sitting in that vacant wow. lot. Amazing. Isn't that incredible? That That's incredible. Literally, that is the exact corner where Melcher's store was located Amazing. from my dad's childhood. I never went to that store, but my father knew it, and because of it, I, through you, was able to give him that uh -huh. picture, and very different meaning <laughs> for, for him. Amazing. Amazing. So sorry, I interrupted you. You were saying about now taking, using drones. From a drone, you can see clearly delineated these 
transitions and abutments of what it's like for a river to go through a city, what it's like where an industrial neighborhood meets a residential neighborhood, what happens when train tracks go through a city. And so when the lockdown happened in, in 2020, I had two projects. One was to write the memoir and my photographic project. We had a house in Montana and we went out there where the pandemic was less of a presence than it was in the Northeast. And my photographic project was to go out with a drone. And again, it's, they're not unusual because they're drone. There are thousands and thousands of people using drones to make pictures. I'm using a very good one, but a completely ordinary one. But it's like, a, it's like any camera. What, what makes a picture interesting is what you do with it. But it allowed me to photograph these transitions that are clear from above, but are you can you understand them from eye level, but you can't. They're they're rarely accessible to a camera at eye level. Stephen, as I was reading the book, I was struck by how many times chance or happenstance played a major role in your life whether it was your uncle giving you the photography developing kid at six or some friend who came by and looked at your portfolio and made an off-the-cuff comment about, oh, they're black and white, and all of a sudden you started to think about shooting in color. <laughs> so the fact that so much of this seems to happen by chance or, ha or happenstance that was profoundly impactful in your life, photographers have to impose order, bring structure to what they photograph. Was this book an effort to bring some semblance of structure or order to your life? Wow, I hadn't thought of that. I think that's a, a fascinating observation. I think, yes. I didn't think of it as a way of bringing structure, but I think it, it did. I mention in the introduction to the book, perhaps photographers look for the universal in the particular. I think that's something that runs through the book for me also, that... It's not an autobiography. I'm discussing things only to the extent that I think they're useful to other people. Another thing that I left it feeling was, one, that it was a great gift to those of us who read it, and two, that it was filled with a sense of gratitude. I really felt that way. I think there was, a, whether you were honoring your influences or your wife or... You know your your uncle. <laughs> you know you, there there was or, or or your mentors. You know of whom there were many. Like there was a there was a beautiful sense of giving and and receiving and gratitude, and that was very moving. There, there's a great moment where you you recount a little story of being in a taxi cab and listening to the cab driver complain about things that are happening in his life, and he turns to you and asks you what your philosophy of life is, and. I thought maybe we could end by you sharing your philosophy of life. When he said that, I realized, I guess I was in probably in my mid-50s at the time, but I never stopped and thought about it in that way. I never thought, you know, what's my philosophy of life? I've just been <laughs> living it. And so I had to, but I felt I owed this man something because he had just been unburdening himself for the entire taxi ride. So three things came to mind. One is don't be upset over things you have no control over. 
The second is, life is fascinating if your work is something you love. And the third is, you're very fortunate if you find a person you truly love. Well, that all really resonates for me. <laughs> uh, the last two, I, I think I really personally live. The first <laughs> one I aspire to, that is, don't sweat the things you can't control. <laughs> and I know you for enough years to know that the last two are exactly right, that uh, you're married to someone you truly love, and, uh, and any enterprise you engage in, the future of storytelling, your publishing, is something you love doing. And, you know, we know, you and I know, that if you're doing that, it doesn't feel like work. It's you get up in the morning and you want to do it. Stephen, I just wanted to say that I, um, since I was a student and met you in college, that I've always really looked up to you and admired you and appreciate the role that you've played as a professional, as an artist, as an educator, as a mentor. And I just wanted to say thank you for all of it. And thank you for being on the show with me and for everything else you've done. And let me say that I've had a number of conversations with people publicly about the book. I think what you brought to it was the most insightful. Thank you for inviting me, Charlie. It's, it's been a, a really interesting discussion. Once again, I'm Charlie Melcher, and this has been the Future of Storytelling podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If storytelling is something that you're passionate about, you've come to the right place. The Future of Storytelling is a community that celebrates stories in all forms, from traditional media to next generation technologies. In addition to this podcast, we offer a free monthly newsletter that delivers the best of storytelling across disciplines right to your inbox. And then there's the Faust Explorers Club, an annual membership program that'll take you to the greatest storytelling experiences around the world. You can learn more about both by going to our website at fost.org. The FOSS Podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented friends and production partners, Charts and Leisure. I hope to see you again soon for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on. Story on.